welcome to episode 8 of the Lulu Reason Podcast. My name is Brandon. And this is the podcast aimed for the practical application of the Christian worldview. And on this episode, we're going to continue our series in Arminianism, looking at um, the next step of that FACTS acronym we talked about last time. So the next one is the Atonement. So we're going to look at the extent of the Atonement, um, the importance of the Atonement, and things of that nature. This podcast will end up being a two-part podcast here on the Atonement. Um, and in this first one, we're going to focus in on the main view of the atonement that I take and that I think is consistent with Arminianism and Wesleyanism and uh, scripture. Four lines in his book, Classical Arminianism, says that there's five basic assumptions of the penal satisfaction view of the atonement. And that is one, God is sovereign. Two, God is holy. Three, man is sinful. Four, God is loving. And five, God is wise. And so from those principles, we'll develop uh, the view of the atonement that I hold to and I take. So in this first part, we're going to talk about the necessity of the atonement, the necessity for sin to be punished, the necessity um, for absolute righteousness and how Christ fulfills those for us. And then in part two, we're going to look at more specifically different scriptures that I think lend to uh, my view of the atonement and that have convinced me of that uh, view of the atonement, which is an atonement for all. So on the last episode, we cover total depravity. And so with um, that idea of total depravity in the background, I actually want to read a little bit from the Society of Evangelical Armenians website, their facts page um, under A in facts, the atonement for all. They write, as observed above, due to total depravity, no one can be saved unless God takes the initiative. The good news is that since God is love, 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16, his mercy is over all that he has made, Psalm 135, 14. He loves even his enemies. Matthew 5.38, he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. And he does not take away, he does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would rather that they repent of their sins and live, Ezekiel 18. And so that's going to be the formula for how we break this into two parts here to keep it uh, manageable on time. So the very first thing they said was, Due to total depravity, no one can be saved unless God takes the initiative. So we're going to kind of expand that and explore that uh, today on this episode. And then in the episode to come, part two, we will talk about the specific verses that were mentioned in in this uh, little short article here. And then some other ones that I find compelling and convincing um, that have moved me to the view of the atonement that I hold now. A lot of this material is going to be my understanding of... Uh, the scriptures, but then also I'm going to rely heavily on Classical Arminism by Leroy Fourlines, um, the book he wrote, uh, because it's just been super helpful in my um, understanding and my study on these topics. So he talks about the necessity of the atonement draws on those first three assumptions that we started with earlier, that God is sovereign, God is holy, and man is sinful. And so God as the sovereign Lord, as um, the king of the earth, he is both the lawgiver and judge of the universe. So because that God is sovereign Lord, this places man in a position of accountability before God. So man is responsible to the judge and lawgiver of the world, and God cannot lay aside his responsibility as judge, um, and man can't escape, can't escape um, his accountability before God as the supreme judge of all. And because of our sinfulness and because of total depravity, uh, man has failed in that accountability department to God. Man has sinned 
um, against an infinitely holy and righteous God. So we're to be held accountable for that. So the necessity of the atonement rests in the fact that um, God is judge and lawgiver and that man has broken that law and is rightly judged by God. And because man is sinful and because God is holy, um, that sin must be punished. It can't be ignored or forgotten or um, just kind of sidestepped, but there's an actual responsibility um, in the name of justice, in the name of holiness and righteousness, that sin has to be accounted for. The justice of God, writes four lines, will not tolerate any attempt to set aside or diminish the penalty of the broken law of God. There can be no forgiveness of sin without a full satisfaction of the justice of God and the payment of the penalty. This is where we find ourselves as totally depraved people under the full condemnation of God, having broken his law and that law requiring full satisfaction to maintain justice. In Romans 3, verse 26, we see that God's design of propitiation um, is to make it possible for God to maintain justice and holiness at the same time justify the sinner who comes to God through faith in Christ, through has union with Christ, the propitiation for our sins. So that's what Romans 3.26 is telling us, is that that was the designed plan of God, is that it maintains justice, it maintains his holiness, it fully satisfies the penalty of sin, and he can justify believers in Christ through union with his Son. You know, I've been asked before or seen questions about um, why Jesus had to come. Why did the Son of God have to lay down his life for sin? Why couldn't God just uh, ignore them or forget about them or just wipe them away and pretend like it didn't happen? Uh, but when people ask that question, they are misunderstanding or struggling to understand the full justice of God. You know, as broken human beings, we don't have a full grasp of what justice is. We get um, some of that from it being written on our hearts, the law of God being written on our hearts. We get some of that from us being created in the image of God with uh, our reason and our moral compass and those things that God has placed in us and on us. Uh, but we struggle to see what true justice, what perfect justice and righteousness looks like. And so uh, to ask the question, well, why did Christ have to die in our place? Why couldn't God just forgive sin? Why couldn't he just ignore them? Um, he's the lawgiver. So why couldn't he just pretend the law didn't exist? But it just it's a misunderstanding of uh, where the law comes from, that it's an expression of his holy nature, and that uh, for God to be perfectly just and righteous and holy, sin that is against that has to be accounted for and satisfied in some way. Biblically, it's clear that our justification before God um, requires an absolute righteousness. Uh, if we were to be justified by works of the law, they would have to be kept perfect and absolute without any falter or missteps or anything of that nature. And when you read through Scripture and you realize that that is the standard to keeping the law of God, is perfection, is absolute righteousness, it becomes overwhelmingly clear that that is not something that any of us could even fathom, let alone actually live out and do. What is the penalty for not 
having absolute righteousness, gets eternal death. That's the penalty for not having absolute righteousness. So the option in the sinner, or maybe maybe not the option is not the right word, but a way to put it is the sinner is in debt to absolute righteousness and eternal death. That is what he has to give is absolute righteousness and eternal death is a consequence of that. That is his debt and the credit to his name as a sinner, as an unbeliever, um, has no payment. There's nothing there that is going to cover those debts for him. But for the believer, his debt is still absolute righteousness, eternal death, but it's paid in full by the blood of Jesus. We are justified by Jesus, so we are credited to him. Credited tid. I, there's too many to tids on that. So we're credited Christ's righteousness and Christ's death. Christ's obedience to the Father, passively through going to the cross on our behalf and actively through the life that he lived, are credited to us as believers in union with Christ through faith. So what is meant by the passive obedience of Christ? Well, what we're talking about is Christ's death on the cross his willingness to go to the cross to suffer and die on our behalf to pay the penalty for sin so that we can be justified by faith through him. And so when Christ went to the cross, all the sins of the world that had ever been committed, ever were being committed, ever would be committed, were laid on him. So our sins were put upon Christ. He took our place under the wrath of God. And God poured out his wrath upon Jesus as if he were the guilty one as if he were the one that had committed these sins. So the suffering of Christ isn't just what the Roman soldiers did to him. is isn't just the crucifixion itself at the hands of the Romans, but it's the wrath of God was literally poured out on Christ. He suffered as much on the cross as sinners will suffer in eternal hell. He experienced separation from the Father. He experienced the full wrath of God to pay the penalty of sin. Christ, the one who had perfect fellowship with the Father, experienced our disfellowship on our behalf so that we could partake in that perfect fellowship that he had with the Father. Another question that comes to mind as we're talking about Christ's payment on the cross for our sin on our behalf, taking on the wrath of God, is a lot of times people ask, well, how is Christ able to pay the full penalty of sin um, when he only suffered on the cross for a limited amount of time. Uh, and they'll even ask, you know, well, he died for three days, but he was raised again. So how does that equal to an eternal punishment that unbelievers face, that those outside of Christ, uh, outside of faith in Christ will experience? And it's important to remember that, uh, or at least it's important to talk about the way in which the penalty is related to man for his sin. So eternal death uh, means that the unbeliever will be paying for that sin, paying for that disfellowship with the Father um, forever. There is no end to it. But how does that work in relation to Christ's finite paying or under a specific time paying for our sins? And the way that I've come to understand it, and uh, actually Four Lines talks about in his book also, um, is the penalty for sin is against a holy and infinite person. It's an, it's against an infinitely just and holy and righteous God. And so the penalty for that sin against an infinitely righteous, 
holy, just God is an infinite penalty. And so as finite creatures, as created beings that are limited in what we are, it takes an infinite amount of time for us to pay for the sins that we commit against an infinite God. But Christ, being God in the flesh, being the incarnate Savior of the world, he can suffer an infinite penalty without it going on infinitely in time. He also, being God, is infinitely just, righteous, and holy. And so him taking on the wrath of God, he has the capacity as an infinite God to pay that penalty on our behalf in a finite amount of time because of who Jesus is. Um, Any other human being or any human being alone could not pay that penalty, which is why it is an infinite payment due. Only God in the flesh is able to redeem and justify and make amends for sin against his infinite holiness and righteousness. And so what is meant by active obedience? All it's meant by active obedience when I talk about it is the life that Christ lived is accredited to us when we are in faith with him as if we lived it. Meaning that we can be considered doers of the law because Christ was a doer of the law. So in union with him, we can be considered doers of the law. His active obedience to the Father, his active obedience to the law, gets credited to our account when we're in union with him through faith. Another way to say it is his absolute righteousness that he lived and exhibited on the world, or in the world while he was here, is credited to us as believers in union with him on our behalf because he did the work for us. It's not our own merits. It's not our own work. Nothing we can do to even come close to that. It's a gift of God that we are brought into that active obedience of Christ through fellowship with him through faith. Paul tells us in Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 1, that there is now, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the grounds for our no condemnation, the grounds for the believer to not being condemned, is being in Christ. That's the condition to not being under condemnation, is being in Christ. So the atonement is designed to resolve um, a problem or a conflict between God and man. It's designed to resolve the conflict of man's guilt of sin. So the guilt of man had closed the door on fellowship with the Father. The guilt of man had ostracized us from God. And the atonement, the design and plan and purpose of the atonement, is to prepare the way for full reconciliation to God, is to open that door of fellowship, is to make amends on our behalf, to pay the penalty that sin deserves, to save us from that eternal death and penalty that we can never pay back. And it opens that door of fellowship, rebuilds that fellowship between man and God. And God is the sole arbiter of that fellowship. Only he, by his grace, leads us to that, carries us along to salvation. Only he, as supreme judge and ruler of the world, could create the atonement, could pay for the sins against his holy law, 
and do it in such a way that maintains his righteousness and justice and does so perfectly. So we ended the last episode on total depravity talking a little bit about what um, this topic has to do with a practical application of the Christian worldview. Um, And I think that uh, we're going to end this episode the same way. And I think that uh, the main point that I want to drive out is, um, kind of like we talked about last time, that our theology dictates our worldview. Our worldview includes theology, which is just the study of God. And so scripture is our foundation, is a foundation of our worldview, it's a foundation of our theology. These things are all intertwined. But ultimately, when we um, have conversations with people we may disagree with or have different worldviews, different beliefs, when we um, engage in those and have friendly discourse, uh, the ultimate goal of those isn't to win an argument or prove a point or um, even necessarily convince them that your beliefs are correct, but it's to show them Jesus, to show them Christ, because ultimately that's what they need. They don't need to adopt your beliefs or my beliefs um, or anything of that nature or change their own and kind of be um, lost there in limbo. Uh, ultimately, the reason we would have conversations about the Christian worldview and things of that nature are because we want to share the gospel message. And so understanding the atonement, understanding what Christ has done on behalf of the unbeliever, on behalf of the sinful, um, and on behalf of those that are in union with him through faith is a vital aspect of that. Because again, we're not just trying to win an argument or um, convince it to our particular brand of Christianity, but we want them to come to Scripture. We want them to come to Christ, and so they need to have an understanding of the atonement so that we can present the gospel well and tell them um, where their sin is leading them, the consequences of disfellowship with the Father, the consequences of sinning against a perfectly holy and righteous judge, and that there is no merit, there is no work they can do on their own, um, but that is because Christ put on flesh, came, lived the life that we couldn't live, and obediently went to the cross to die on our behalf, took on the wrath of the Father, took on the wrath that we all deserved, paid the infinite penalty that we couldn't pay, and freely offers us atonement and justification through grace, through faith in him and his work on the cross. So as I mentioned, the next part of this podcast is going to dive uh, much more into the scriptural reasons that I take this view of the atonement, and we're going to look at um, and exegete some scriptures. Obviously, we couldn't cover them all, but uh, we're going to highlight the main ones that I think um, are extremely important and have convinced me of this uh, understanding of the atonement. Um, But to end this episode, I wanted to read a section from Robert Piccarelli's book, Grace, Faith, and Free Will, where he quotes um, Calvinist theologian Paul K. Jewett from his book, Election and Predestination. And in this, um, Jewett is recognizing uh, a difficulty for particular atonement. He says, The apostles preached a message that not only imposed the obligation on all to repent and believe the gospel, but assured all who came with an earshot that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, 2 Corinthians 5.19, 
This reconciliation was effected by him whose act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all. For by his obedience, meaning Christ, many will be made righteous. Romans 5, 18 and 19. This act of righteous obedience culminated in the death on a Roman cross as Christ crucified. He is the propitiation for our sins and only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. To this Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. To this man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. The apostle bore eloquent witness in due time, and so through their witness the grace of God appeared for salvation of all, Titus 2, 11. Even the grace of the God who will have all men and women to be saved, 1 Timothy 2, 4. The God who so loved the world that he gave his only son, John three sixteen because he is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3-9 through So I'm excited for the second part of this to dig into the scriptural reasons that I hold an atonement for all or a universal atonement. Um, but I thought it necessary to set this foundation up uh, for why the atonement was necessary in the first place, because a lot of people have questions about that. Um, so just remember that. Take that with you as you go out into the world, as you share this wonderful message from Christ that he has made atonement for those who by faith are in union with him so we can be reconciled to the father by grace through faith in Christ his son so that's the message we take the world to go share that message remember Christ is king Christ is Lord he is savior of all